0: Open your Bibles, if you would. Colossians chapter 3. And if you're feeling crowded over here, there's there's seating over here. Most of the kids that left went from over there. And Please do keep this issue of the building in prayer. Obviously, we need space. That's, That's a vital thing. We've looked at a whole lot of options. The best one seems to be taking this whole building um, a lot of the options that we thought we could pursue, for various reasons, wasn't going to happen. So, um, but some things have to fall into place. So please keep that in prayer that that would happen. I can't say anymore right now, but just please keep it in prayer. So we spent the last several months in Corinthians, First Corinthians. We're going to return to Corinthians after the first of the year. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians. Um, but between now and then, we have this absolutely marvelous season we're stepping into, uh, the holiday season. And boy, we want to take advantage of that to worship the Lord. So between now and Thanksgiving, at least, we're going to be considering the topic of Thanksgiving, what that is all about. And then the Sunday, of course, after Thanksgiving, uh, we'll step into this for Sunday of Advent. Um, but before we get to the text, i want to make just a few follow-up comments from last week. Last week, if you recall, in 1 Corinthians 16, the issue came up of the offering that was raised in Corinth for the church in Jerusalem. And whenever you talk about that issue, there's always questions. And so without fail, I had some questions that I was asked after the service. And I just want to take a couple of minutes to speak to that issue, the whole issue of the finances and offering and all that. The question that I normally get asked and I really appreciate it. This is one of the few really direct questions I get. For some reason, this is not one that people beat around the bush on. They look me right in the eyes and they say, do you teach tithing? Right? Boom, it's just right there. Um, and the answer to that is, well, first off, number one, we're not under the law. Right? We don't give any space to the law. Tithing was required of the people of Israel under the law. We leave no room for the law. Paul made that absolutely clear in the Galatian letter. You keep one part of the law, you're burdened to keep the whole thing. I want nothing to do with that. All right? I thank God for Jesus. Right. We're no longer under the law. But, you know, in the Old Testament, they had to tithe 10%, and then it said they could do whatever they wanted to with the rest of us. Right? We don't have the law of tithing, but we have the principle that every single thing we have is His. And we are given the responsibility of stewarding what he has. So we have a lot more freedom, but we also have a higher requirement. Because everything I, everything I have is his. Everything I ever laid my hands on is his. My, everything that I would call mine is his. And I will give an answer in eternity for how I stewarded that. So that's the principle that we act by. And the way... We practice that, or I think, I recommend the best way to practice that principle of stewardship is by, first off, first step, regularly supporting the ministry of the church. If you want to use a 10% as a standard, that's fine, but I do suggest strongly that you do it as a spiritual discipline regularly. And there's two reasons for that. One, it meets a practical need, the church has to pay its bills, but more importantly, that by practicing that discipline, of regularly investing in the kingdom, I am reminded the biggest beneficiary to my giving, my supporting, is me. Because I am reminded of, my, of all that I have is His, and I am encouraging myself to conduct all that I do with that in mind. And that will all impact the exchange that occurs between me and the Lord when I meet Him face to face, And I have to give an explanation for all that I did with all that he gave me. So, again, uh, the practice of giving, it's one of the simplest because it's tangible, not necessarily the easiest, but it's one of the simplest of the Christian disciplines. It doesn't win us any favor with God, but it facilitates the building of his kingdom and it opens the door for his blessing in my life. So that's the answer to when I'm asked, do you practice tithing? That's the answer. Do you preach tithing? So, and if you have more questions, Ask me afterwards. Right. For the text this morning, let's go ahead and look to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in the 12th verse. Paul writes this, and this is going to be our text through the holiday season, uh, at least through the Thanksgiving portion of the holiday season. Paul writes, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, or rather thanks through Him, to God the Father. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and pray, Lord, that our hearts and minds would simply be open to what You would have us understand of You through Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting into this passage from Colossians. We're going to be talking about Thanksgiving for the next two or three Sundays. haven't quite decided yet. Um, But the way I want to start, because we're in this Colossian letter, is first take just a few minutes to look at the Colossian church and the Colossian letter. So we're careful to put everything, of course, in its right context. And then begin to talk about this issue of exactly what it is to be thankful. If you paid attention at all, in that passage that I read, there's three different times It refers to the general principle of thankfulness. And the first time, the very first reference, is in verse 15 where he says, Be thankful. So we're going to talk about that uh, just to begin with. But first, the church in Colossae. Uh, If you've read your New Testaments much, and if you've read the Colossian letter, you know that the Colossian church and the Colossian letter are rather unique. Unique in the sense this is a church Paul never went to. Uh, It started without him being there. He's writing to it, having never been there, and there's no indication he ever intended to go there. So, this is kind of an unusual situation. The Roman church, Paul hadn't been to, but he was going there, and that's why he wrote the letter, right? But this is the church Paul has no immediate direct contact with. So, that's a little bit odd, a little different, right? The other thing, and if you read the letter, you'll pick up on it, is the way Paul writes to this church. Um, we can contrast it, for example, with the Corinthian letters we've been looking at. They have got problems galore, right? We've been looking at the Corinthian letter, and a lot of it had to deal with just their carnality. It was a really, really messed up church because of where they were. It was a big port city. It was actually like one city with two ports, and so they were you know, twice as much as your average port city might be like, right? The Colossian church had a whole different set of issues to deal with, and it really comes through in the letter if you, if you look at the map, and you can find one you know, online if you haven't got one in your Bible, um, in the first century, as the gospel began to spread, you find an awful lot of churches along the western shore of modern Turkey and the southern shore of modern Turkey. That was really the center of Christianity through the first couple centuries. I mean, I'll mean, i be honest with you, one of the most sobering things for me when I hear about all that's going on in Turkey today is to realize that for several centuries what we call Turkey was the center of the Christian world. The seven churches in Revelation, where were they? Turkey. The seven early ecumenical uh, conferences of the church, the ecumenical council, Turkey. The, the missionary center of the first century, Antioch, Turkey. So this country now that we see in the grip of radical Islam, far, falling farther and farther into the grasp of radical Islam, was the center of Christianity in the first several centuries. The largest Christian city, if a city can be Christian, I understand the complications of that expression, but the largest Christian city in the Roman Empire wasn't Rome. It was Constantinople. And yet, look at it today. And I look at that, and that sends chills up my spine. Because who is to say... That's not where we'll be in 100 years. We have no guarantees except in leaning on Him and being faithful. God alone can stop that from happening. Now, Colossae, as I was starting to talk about Turkey, in that first century, uh, there, the, the whole western coast of Turkey, modern Turkey, wasn't called Turkey then, and the southern coast on the Mediterranean, that's where most of the churches were. And as you move north and east into the Anatolian plateau, there's no churches. Right? Gospel had not penetrated there yet. Colossae is right on the edge of all that. So Colossae is like this Christian outpost surrounded by, at that time, Eastern thinking, right? And to say Eastern thinking is not to denigrate Eastern thinking, whether Persian or anything else, except to say that it wasn't Christian. Gospel hadn't penetrated. So Colossae was in this very vulnerable spot of being impacted by a lot of... just. Different thinking, and if you just read chapter two of Colossians, you get and you realize the kind of issues Paul is bringing up. He's not talking about you know gross carnality like Corinth struggled with. Just the opposite, right? They were getting into this really weird ascetic stuff where they were all going to live like monks, right? That just doesn't work real well, right? So Paul is addressing those kinds of issues, and that's all about these influences coming in from outside of Christendom. So the Colossian church had some real challenges. Is all I'm trying to say of a totally different nature than say Corinth. And Paul is addressing that, and it's in that context. Because every issue Colossae had, had one answer. The person and character of Jesus. They were losing track of who Jesus was. And when we lose track of who Jesus is, we have a problem. So he's addressing that, and that's what he's doing. He's bringing to their attention the fact that the person and character of Jesus is how you got started in this Christian walk. It's what you need to continue in it, right? So that's what he's talking about when we come to this passage in chapter 3 where he talks about very, if you look at the passage, it starts off, uh, the first couple of verses, 12 and 13, talking about holy and beloved, heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. It, it sounds like, you know, like the gifts of the Spirit, right? Or the, the fruit of the Spirit. It's those basic Christian virtues, like humility, right? Compassion. When was the last time we talked about Christian virtues? virtue. That's like a word that has slipped from our vocabulary, right? It's like become some old-fashioned idea. Like we don't, yes, we do need to talk about Christian virtue. Those characteristics that the Christian should exhibit, should emanate from our being to demonstrate the person of Christ in us. Not out of our own effort, right? You've tried that, you know how well that works. Doesn't but by the person of Christ dwelling within us through the power of His Spirit. That's why we said fruit of the Spirit. It can be manifest. That basic core Christian virtue. So Paul's talking about that as he lays this groundwork. And then in verse 14, he says, Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And we talked about that. 1 Corinthians 13. What is that love that Paul talks about? It's not loving people so much that they see Jesus through me. No, it's Jesus in me emanating His character out from me. Because if it's me loving you enough that you see Jesus in me, where's that love coming from? If it's coming from my character, that's a lousy definition of Jesus. But if by His presence in me and the intimacy of my walk with Him, I somehow, through some miracle of God, and it is a miracle, by the power of His Spirit in me begin to emanate in the smallest way, his character, that's the love of God being demonstrated. His love shining out through me. That's what he's talking about. And then he gets to this issue, which is really what we're trying to get this morning, in verse 15. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. Not give thanks, but be thankful. Paul begins by describing thankfulness as a state of being. Now, that's not how we normally think of thankfulness or giving thanks, right? When we talk about thank you, it's something that we say. We talk about thankfulness, it's something that we do. Almost all of our experience of thankfulness, whether we're extending it or whether we're receiving it, is related to an action or a word. It's something that we do. But Paul starts at a much more foundational level. He said, be thankful. It's constructed from the the verb, which means to become. It literally talks about a change in our nature, a change in our status. It carries the idea of arriving at some point, right? So, yeah, I can say, thank you, God. And that's one thing, by the way, we should. It's really important that we do give thanks to God and say thank you to God. That's really important. I'm not suggesting at all that we don't do that, right? But that's one thing. And it is important. I mean, you look at the Old Testament especially, it is really clear how important it is. And not just the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's really important how important clear how important it is to give thanks. I just pause for a minute and I think Jesus gave thanks. If you think about it, it's kind of weird. But Jesus did. At every opportunity, every time we have a record of him, he gave thanks. And so it's really important to do that. I'm making light of that. But at a much more important foundational level, Paul says, we need to have that change of our character that turns us into thankful people. Turns us into thankful beings, quite literally, right? That's our focus this morning, being thankful. So what does it mean to be thankful, right? The place from which genuine thankfulness emanates out of us, right? That's that's a big big change. Now, those of you that have children, think about what it was like to first teach your kids to say please and thank you, right? Now, for some reason, some kids, it just comes naturally, right? But then there are those where, no. Why? Why do I have to say please? Why do I have to say thank you, right? Right? Ever wonder why that is? I think every child, to a measure, struggles with that, right? I think it has a lot to do with our sense of independency and self sufficiency. I'll bet the child that said, Why do I have to say please and thank you, is the same one who said, I can do it myself. It's that, it's that delusion that we live with of our self sufficiency, our self dependency, right? which is where I think all too often we find ourselves in our relationship with God, this nonsensical delusion of self-sufficiency. In part, it's a cultural thing. It's part of Western thinking. Um, somebody once said that all of Western thinking is a footnote to Aristotle. Aristotle said this, happiness belongs to the self-sufficient. Probably explains why there's so few happy people, and those who are deluded, Right. Try this, try this. If you want to get a good grasp on where we are culturally with regards to this whole idea of self-sufficiency, peruse the motivational posters that you see like in every business, right? I have found motivational posters fall into two categories. The ones that talk about teamwork, all those motivational posters that talk about teamwork, and all the rest. And all the rest are geared at what? Your self-sufficiency. Right, which is really hard to put those two together, right? But they're either talking about teamwork or they're talking... I just did a quick perusal of some of the motivational posters that you might find, and I came up with phrases like this. You are a champion. You are in charge of your destiny. Boy, hmm. um, Don't wait for opportunities. Create them. Be obsessed with greatness. No excuses, only results. Make your own luck with hard work. Define your vision and go after it. Focus on your goals, your mission dream, believe, achieve. The wild part is all of those came off one poster. It was a real, it was a really busy poster, let me tell you. You'd have been in there. Talk about counterproductive. Somebody would take a half an hour, you have to read the poster, and then they're not doing any work, right? So, but no, we have, and by the way, there's a measure of truth in every one of those statements. Every one of those statements has a measure of truth in it, but at its core, it expresses this crazy idea that we are totally... Um, self-sufficient, what's the big lie we tell our kids? You can be anything you set your mind to. What a bunch of garbage. <laughs> yes, I understand you're the shortest kid in your class and you want to be in the NBA. <laughs> I thank God, and I, this is not an easy one for me. It's, I've had to work through this one. I thank God, I, when I was five, I had my future planned out. I did. I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was five years old. I even had like a plan B and a plan C. All of them required normal color perception. Boy, did that get unplugged in a hurry. Yeah. I am colorblind across the spectrum, right? Boom. It didn't matter how hard I tried. Those things were not gonna happen. Right? Yeah. I kind of I, it's still hard for me. Thank God that he gave me that understanding. So really there are some things that are just never gonna happen, right? Yeah. You just it's just not gonna happen, right? But we entertain this nonsensical idea that we can do anything because of this, again, nonsensical idea that we're actually self-sufficient, independent, right? How do we begin to move from that lie we tell ourselves toward a real understanding of, of what our dependency on God is and should look like and how we express gratitude as a result of that? Again, first, so important really get that concept of our insufficiency locked solid in our head. What is the one belief that all atheists share? If you think that there's no God, you're wrong. They believe in a God. It just happens to be them. Right? All, all, all the atheist does is replace, replace God with, himself, with him or herself. I can do it myself, right? I'm sufficient unto myself, right? I have to come to terms with that And then I have, at the same time, at the same time. Because it doesn't do you any good to just arrive at a sense of dependency. Because if that's all you've got, is a sense that I'm not sufficient to myself, I am dependent, and that's as far as you go, where does that leave you? A bum. Right? Dependent on everybody else. Okay? Now we have to link, and this is the hard part, we have to link this understanding of our insufficiency with the same time our our responsibility. I am responsible to, to take care of myself. I'm responsible to provide for myself. And I'm, as, a, as a husband and a father, I'm also responsible for a family. And I have all other, all kinds of other responsibilities that have come into my world that I am responsible to accomplish. How do I link that with this incredible understanding that I can't get the job done? In and of myself, I can't do it. It just heightens this sense of desperation, this linking of my dependency, my lack of self-sufficiency with the responsibility I have. That's really challenging until I link it with God's sufficiency. That's the first step. First step is understanding without any question my insufficiency, right? And then linking that with God's absolute sufficiency, right? He does take care of us. And this is an especially difficult one for somebody that hasn't gone through the first step, hasn't come to terms with their own insufficiency, because there's so many ways we delude ourselves, again, into thinking that we are sufficient. But even, here's the key, big deal, even for the one that doesn't acknowledge him, what does the Bible say? He causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. right? His provision for every man, woman, and child is a tangible reality. The atheist who who proudly stands up and says, God doesn't exist. Excuse me, how did you just say that? Oh, you sucked in some air, and then as you blew the air out, your, your vocal cords vibrated, and you were able to blaspheme God, right? Where'd the air come from? That air that you sucked in and blew out. Not to mention the lungs and the vocal cords and everything. Where'd that come from? The atheist blasphemes God with the very breath he gave them. He sustains even the non-believer. What does God do for us? Well, first of all, think of all the things He's already provided. Again, the breath that we breathe. The world that we inhabit. And He continually provides for us the resources and the ability. I was thinking about the whole Exodus experience this week. I think most of us know know the story. The children of Israel went out in the morning, there was the manna on the ground, and they collected it, and they went in, and they were able to eat. Other than the matter of degree, you know, the degree of effort required, and the complexity of the effort required, how is that different than what you and I do every day? Think about it for a minute. They went out, and they gathered what God had provided, and then they went and they ate, right? Other than the degree of effort, and the complexity of the effort, we have to work harder, and it takes more creativity on our part, essentially, we're doing the exact same thing, no matter what your job is. Because whatever your job is, whatever you are doing, or collecting, or gathering, or building, or anything you're doing ultimately gets traced back to something that God has created, one way or another. And I read something this week that, that gave me a whole new insight onto that. Um, it's really kind of scary because it's like way out of, my, out, of my, out of my world. I figured this whole thing with virtual currency is really becoming a big thing, and I need to at least know something. How many of my show of hands would say, I don't know anything about it? Oh, I'm in good company. Okay. <laughs> so I started to read about it, and I was amazed. Virtual currency, cryptocurrency is Nothing. It's nothing. It's a total mental construct, right? And, you know, the picture you see of the Bitcoin, that's just a picture. There's no such thing. It's a total virtual reality. It's a mental construct, right? But it works. This is wild. You can buy, you can sell, you can invest, you can trade using nothing, That's a mind blower, right? And I started, I was thinking about that and just trying to process it. And then I tried, I took that and I applied to this whole issue of as human beings, we are wholly dependent on him. Everything we say, do, touch, everything, right? Comes from him, right? What do they say in the mining and logging industry? If you can touch it, it was either mined or grown or harvested, right? Now I'm preaching bumper stickers. I'm in trouble. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right, Minder farmed, right? That kind of leaves the fisherman out, though, so i got to be careful about that. Yeah. Um, but you think about the whole virtual currency thing. If anywhere, if there's anywhere where, as human beings, we have escaped this, the tyranny of this idea that everything we do is by what God has created, if virtual currency exists only in our mind and yet we're able to make it work, have we finally achieved independence from God? Then I read this, blew me away, made no sense when I first read it. How many of you know about the energy consumption of the virtual currency world? It's weird! If, if, and I don't even know what word to use to describe the virtual currency industry or the virtual currency world, whatever word you use to describe this whole system by which this non-existent currency works. The, and this is not fringe. This comes from the May issue of the Harvard Business Journal. It's not some fringe thing here. All right. The energy usage of the Bitcom virtual currency system equals that of Sweden. Now, when I first read that, I thought, yeah, well, the Swedes spend all their time, time sitting in saunas. What's their energy consumption? Ah, they also make Volvo's. And the SAAB, major aerospace industry, they use a lot of energy. They're about 30th in the world. Of all nations, they're about 30th. So the BitCom virtual currency world uses the same energy as the 30th largest energy-consuming economy. What do they use the energy for? Just to run the computers. Just to run the computers that enable virtual currency, this total non-existent thing, consumes massive amounts of energy. Where did the energy come from? Where did they get the energy from? So even at the height of human creativity and thinking, the ability to free ourselves from anything tangible that we actually might have to give God thanks for, we suddenly rediscover that we're wholly dependent on him. We can accomplish nothing. Nothing without him. So we come to terms with that reality as we begin to come to terms with that reality, we practice the habit of giving thanks, and we'll talk more about that the next couple of weeks. That continuity of giving thanks is so important. It's like, depending on your translation, 80 times in the Old Testament, it says continually giving thanks. Or continually offering thanksgiving. idea of continual practice. right? You know, like Like, for example, the lamp that burned continually. God didn't need that, right? Not like God needed a reading lamp. No, we need that. We need that continuity of thanksgiving to remind ourselves, to bring us to the place that it begins to be part of our being. So I've come up with four things so far. First, was like two lists of four, actually. The first is coming to terms with our own inadequacy our own insufficiency, coming to terms with his sufficiency and his generosity even to the lost. Making Thanksgiving a habit. And then fourthly, I think this, for me, this is like the one point where it really comes home for me and my own just personal practice, is you know when you're going to give thanks like at a meal? At least for me, just just me. The most important part of that Thanksgiving prayer is the pause right in front of it. You know when you're all getting ready to like, dive in, right? Whatever the meal is, and you, know, you guys know me, I'm a Greek. Take my food seriously, and I'm ready to eat. I want to eat, right? You take food seriously in my house. It was hot. I want to get in. but the pause—the pause before you start to say thanks, when you shift your mind from what you have done to the one who has given it to you, and that even just moment of contemplation when I go, yeah. As much work as I put into it, don't have any of it without him, without God. And how he in his generosity and goodness has provided his force and continues to provide for it. That pause is so critical. You know, next week we're going to move on to the issue of thanksgiving, the actual doing of it, and what the word actually means. It's the Greek word of karisto. I think you'll find the word really interesting. Um, but for now, let me just say this. You know, And in a way, it does relate back to that issue I started with, that discussion of how we like giving financially, supporting the church. Those issues are all connected because it comes to understand just how dependent we are on him and giving him the opportunity to bless us. And that is one thing that every exercise of thanksgiving does. As I step farther into the idea of being a thankful person, not just giving thanks, but being a thankful person, um, or my being becomes realigned. One of the things that does that is, is, the, is the practice of thanksgiving. But another thing is the experiencing of his response. When I experience the unexpected blessing that comes in response to my saying thanks to him, my expressing thanks in any of the ways I can, that's an integral component. And, I, and I'll close with just this one example. Uh, as many of you know, um, Pastor Joyce received; a, uh, she was um, given a sabbatical. She was scholarship with a sabbatical about three years ago, and we decided she decided that part of that would be a course in apologetics. She wanted to take at Oxford, and I carried the bags. I got to go along. Right? It was marvelous um, because besides just being cool to be in England for six weeks with no responsibilities, she had to listen to lectures all day. I was just enjoying. I tell people I did an exhaustive study of fish and chips in and around Oxford. (laughs) Yeah. You wonder where the good places are? Ask me. Okay. But, I mean, there were things I was excited about. There were things I was really, the triumph factory made it. Um, But there were so many things that God did that just blessed us that we never saw coming. There is a book that played a huge role in our courtship, Joyce and I, and it's set in Oxford, and a critical part of it was at this little tiny church somewhere outside of Oxford, right? You know about it, right? If you're a big Alice in Wonderland, you will know about St. Mary's Church and the well, St. Fried's Well well or spring, I probably mispronouncing it. That's a really big deal for people in Alice Wonderland. Um that wasn't why it was important to us, because this church, particularly a cross out in the graveyard, had played a really huge role in our, in our courtship and um, sure enough we're driving around one day and, wow there's that church and there's that cross that played a huge role in someone else's walk with God and when they put it on paper it played a huge role in our relationship and our experience of the grace and the goodness of God and it was as if the Lord just said here here's a gift totally unexpected and yet an overwhelming blessing for us. Totally unique to us because of the way our relationship got started. When we start with Thanksgiving, the act of Thanksgiving, mindful of our dependence, our lack of self-sufficiency, we link that to His generosity and goodness, and we practice that, we begin to see a change in our own character. And that change in and of itself is a work of His Holy Spirit. And that's what this is all about. Giving his spirit space, room, opportunity through raw materials, if you will, to create his, spirit, his character in us. And that's what we need and that's what the people around us desperately need. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning as we step into this whole idea of thankfulness, Lord. And the dynamic of becoming people of thankfulness. Lord, we, we confess this morning, I confess, Lord, this is not in me. I cannot achieve that through any effort of my own, Lord. That's just not me. I'm still, I'm still the little kid saying, why do I have to say thanks? Um, they're supposed to do it for me, right? Why do I have to say please, right? Yeah. Um, I can discipline myself to say those things, Lord, but to really understand what it is to live in gratitude. That my the core of my being is an expression of, Lord, I can't do that on my own. But I believe... You are doing it because your word tells us you will do it, and you don't ask of us anything we can't do with your help. So, Father, I thank you for that work that you have done, the work that you will do, Father. And I pray this morning, especially, Lord, there be anybody, Father, that just really here this morning and struggling on that issue of the simple acknowledgement of our dependence on you, Lord that it's in the gentleness and the sweetness of your spirit, Lord. You'd make that so very clear and then connect that, Father, with an unshaking confidence of your goodness, your sufficiency, your provision for us. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.